You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. We got a quick look at CISA's National Cybersecurity Summit. A big new distributed denial of service vector is reported. Medical servers leave patient information exposed to the public internet. Huawei is suspended from the first group as it argues its case in a U.S. federal court. And one of the challenges of engaging ISIS online is that it relies so heavily on commercial infrastructure. It's got to be targeted carefully. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, September 19, 2019. U.S. federal agencies are taking election security seriously, as we heard yesterday at the second annual National Cybersecurity Summit, organized by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. CISA and its partners are concerned with direct hacking of voting systems, but also with countering influence operations mounted by hostile foreign governments. Discussions were particularly aware of the ways in which social media lend themselves to confirmation bias and the ways in which such bias can be used to create or exploit fissures in civil society. CISA director Christopher Krebs also offered a suggestion to the security industry. Please stop selling fear. Sure, it can work for marketing sometimes, although even there it's subject to diminishing returns as the customer slides into learned helplessness. But it's an impediment to sensible discussions and planning that could actually avert damage. This is especially true, he thought, with election security, where citizens' confidence in their institutions is a principal target. He didn't ask why we should do the opposition's work for them, but we will. If the bad actors want to destroy trust and confidence, let them try to do so without the security industry scoring a lot of their own goals. So keep calm and carry on. Akamai reports that a new distributed denial-of-service vector, WS-Discovery, a UDP amplification technique, is being exploited in the wild. The approach is a good one from the attacker's point of view, since it's enabling them to achieve amplification rates of 15.3 thousand percent. Yeah, we don't have an intuitive grasp of how big that is either. It's like astronomical distances. You've got no feel for them at all, but you're pretty sure they're pretty big. This, Akamai points out, gives the attack technique the fourth-highest reflected amplification factor on the DDoS leaderboard. There's been another case of misconfigured servers exposing private information to public inspection. Researchers at Greenbone Networks have found a very large number of medical images, radiological images for the most part, sitting out there online. Greenbone looked at 2,300 picture archiving and communication systems, servers based on the DICOM protocol and found that some 400 million images belonging to 24.5 million patients were easily accessible. 
Why would someone care about this? Apart from being sensitive about your x-rays, there are several good reasons. The exposed files were commonly associated with patient data that included a full name, date of birth, date of examination, what the researchers call scope of the investigation, the type of imaging, the attending physician, the healthcare facility where the procedures were performed, and the number of images generated during the procedures. One often thinks first of identity theft in such cases, and of course, that's a possibility, but this sort of information is also very useful in social engineering. Consider, you're in for medical imaging, which is often associated with serious and frightening conditions. Your guard will be down if you receive an email or phone call that appears to be from the doctor or the tech who took the x-rays or MRI. That's the bigger problem here. GDPR created huge incentives for companies to make sure they met data privacy regulations by the implementation deadline. Still, there are some areas where they are lagging behind. David Talaga is from data integrity and integration firm Talend, and he offers his insights. It's a GDPR one-year anniversary back in May 19. At that time, the European Data Protection Board registered around 90,000 complaints. Most complaints were coming for kind of telemarketing use case, promotional email, video surveillance, that kind of things. Uh, on our sites, what you found out is that 98% of the uh, policy have been updated by customers, which is fine. Uh, they update the data privacy policy with GPA. You can go to the website. You can see some terms of agreement that have been updated. But in reality, we, we saw that 70% uh, did not apply, failed to provide data within the 30 days, which is a kind of a, a limit that has into GDPR. So in reality, data management is still suffering, uh, is still not there. So from a policy point of view, from a process point of view, that's fine. You can say that the uh, legal, the lawyers have done their jobs, but in reality, data management pipelines need really to be uh, integrated with each other. And what is causing that gap? Why are they not doing a better job? Because I think that the, the point is that they, they really start by, by, by going to the lawyers, but not going to the IT departments and talking, business and IT talking together about what do I need to do uh, to make sure that my data is covered. And the fact is sometimes topics like data quality is no way is accountable for that into companies. Uh, first point. Second point, they don't know that, that such kind of tools are existing sometimes. They are they're very keen on integrating things, but not keen on trusting the data. And they don't even aware, be aware of that. So we try uh, over the last two years at Talent to make really good progress on that, informing on customers, informing the market that things have changed. And now we have data quality tools that help them to really protect their data and secure their data pipeline. Now, describe to me when you're talking about uh, data masking, um, what exactly is that and what does that get me in terms of compliance? Um, data masking, so it's, a, it's, it's when you go to a store and once you go to a store and they register your personal information. But maybe or you go to a website and you, you enter your email, your address and so on and you keep receiving some promotional emails and you're you're, you're upset about that. So you want to claim for data deletions for just to have your record being deleted by the company. The thing is right now, companies are struggling to do that. They're doing manually. It's okay for one on two records, but imagine that you have millions of records processing through your website or through your retail shops. So imagine that you have several hundreds of these records of, of ask from the customer. So you need encryptions, you need data masking. So at some point of time, once the uh, user has requested data to be deleted, 
you can automate it, this kind of task. So what does it mean is that the personal data, like first name, name, will be replaced by a random series of figures and letters uh, without any kind of personal information. You will keep the first name and last name structure, so you can, or the gender kind of things, so you can, but no personal information will remain into the data. And you can tell these guys, the companies, okay, that's okay, you, we have deleted all your data, it's done. That's David Talaga from Talon. The Wall Street Journal reports that Huawei's membership in FIRST, the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams, has been suspended. FIRST says the suspension is temporary and was undertaken in response to U.S. trade sanctions against Huawei. FIRST is an important cooperative group for the sharing of information among cyber incident response organizations, and Huawei's exclusion from the forum is not a trivial matter. The Washington Post reminds readers that Huawei is defending itself against the sanctions in oral arguments today before the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Texas. Their contention is thought likely to be that the U.S. government's strictures against them aren't based on security at all, but are just a gambit in a Sino-American trade war. Observers are dubious about how likely this is to fly, but it's not an obviously crazy position, and you can't blame a guy for trying. U.S. Cyber Command is ramping up operations against ISIS. The sometime caliphate is not generally reckoned to show a high level of technical sophistication, but it's been able to operate effectively, particularly in its use of the Internet for communication and inspiration. Its resilience lies in part in its use of commercial infrastructure, which makes ISIS's online operations difficult to disrupt without doing unacceptably high and sometimes collateral damage. A Marine Corps brigadier general told Fifth Domain, quote, Whether it's cyber or kinetic, we're still under the law of war. So we have to, one, determine where that is and if we find that out, and we can't hand that off to another intelligence agency or local law enforcement, then we're at an end until we can get our higher policymakers to come to some agreement at a higher government level to get after that problem, end quote. To follow up yesterday's discussion of cyber calls for fire, this illustrates the complexity of the problem. If cyber attack is analogous to fire support, it's like fire support delivered during combat in a densely populated city. And the general's observation about the laws of war isn't idle. That's why they put JAG lawyers on targeting teams. So a tough problem, but not necessarily an insoluble one. Task Force Ares, good hunting. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Uh, I saw a story come by in the MIT Technology Review uh, by Patrick Howell O'Neill, and this was about uh, smartphones and how this notion of compelled decryption might be headed for the Supreme Court. What's going on here? So the legal principle involved here is your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. You can't be forced to testify against yourself in court. Uh, Prior to the advent of Face ID and even Touch ID, this issue was relatively simple because courts considered entering in a passcode to unlock your smart device to be what we call testimonial evidence. That's the equivalent of asking you in court, uh, what's your password to get into your phone? And that would force you to tell a judge or a jury what that password is and they'd have access to your device. Uh, what's become very interesting with the advent of, uh, advent of Face ID and Touch ID is that the evidence collected is no longer testimonial. Rather, it's something that you wouldn't have to actively tell anybody. It could be simply the device matching up to your face or to your fingerprint. Courts have been very divided as to whether... Uh, forcing somebody to decrypt their device using Face ID or Touch ID violates their Fifth, uh, fifth Amendment right to uh, against self-incrimination. And because there's been that divide at the lower court level, I think we're anticipating in the next couple of years that this is going to be an issue that's going to make its way to the United States Supreme Court. Now, I know devices uh, have uh, what's referred to sometimes as, as cop mode, which is where if you have one of these biometric unlocking mechanisms enabled, you can you know, press a button on the phone a certain number of times and it'll switch over to require a password. Um, are we looking at any sorts of uh, adjustments to the legal approach to that sort of thing? One thing we talk about frequently uh, in the battle between privacy and, and government security is this idea of, a, of uh, achieving equilibrium in our, in our right to privacy. So because the technology has evolved to have things like cop mode, where if there are a certain number of attempts to unlock the phone with face ID or touch ID, the user has to type in the password – that's technology that has made it more difficult for law enforcement to gain access to these phones, which means, according to how Fourth Amendment jurisprudence has worked over the years, my guess is that courts are now going to try and come up with an equitable solution to try and uh, put those rights back in equilibrium. To put it more simply, they're going to try and give law enforcement additional capability to decrypt those devices in response to this change in technology. That's usually the way it goes for these types of digital privacy cases. 
and I think that's something that the Supreme Court would consider. It, it would be a major burden on law enforcement to lose this backdoor access to electronic devices. Uh, and if there is this Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination as it applies to biometric data, they're going to have a very hard time getting access to, to smartphones. Any indications on, on where the Supreme Court might go with something like this? So one of the foremost experts on digital privacy, Professor Oren Kerr, has been tracking this and has noted that there have been contradictory decisions in all different uh, judicial circuits across the country. And that's why it's such a favorable case for the Supreme Court. Um, hmm. When there are disagreements among circuit courts, it's something the Supreme Court is going to look at closely because they're going to need to settle this issue, especially as uh, we get to a point where almost all smartphones and other electronic devices are going to be enabled with Touch ID or Face ID and are going to require biometric data to decrypt. Um, so I think it's going to motivate the Supreme Court to to get involved. We've also seen this come up in the news recently because the Attorney General of the United States suggested that Congress should enact a law to give law enforcement the ability to decrypt devices. It would basically be a law mandating access, uh, backdoor access for the government to this encrypted data. Um, so it's something that's uh, prevalent in the news. That's, you know, usually the signal when you have a split among judicial circuits and something that's being talked about in the co-equal branches of government. That's usually a good signal that the Supreme Court is ready to take up the issue. All right. Well, time will tell. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.